Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings children's book, The Secret River, has been made into an opera. It's a Florida story by a Florida author, a Florida composer, so we're, we're really just proud of it. We'll discuss invasive plants and animals. By the early 21st century, the proliferation of the Burmese python had taken a steep toll on the Everglades wildlife. And visit Criteria Studios in Miami. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Opera Orlando has commissioned the new work, The Secret River, based on a children's book by Florida writer Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings, best known for her Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Yearling. The opera was written by Pulitzer Prize and Grammy-winning librettist Mark Campbell and University of Central Florida Pegasus professor and composer Stella Sung. We spoke with Stella Sung, along with Grammy Award-winning baritone and Opera Orlando executive director Gabriel Presser, following the screening of a film version of the opera at the Hippodrome State Theater in Gainesville. We're only six years old as an opera company, but about, uh, I guess it was two years into the opera company, Stella and I met. Um, I grew up in Apopka, Florida. I'm a Florida boy. Coming to find out that Stella's a Florida girl, she grew up here in Gainesville. Uh, so I think we just hit it off, <laughs> partially because of that, but because of our love of, of music, of opera. She had composed uh, a couple operas. We were getting the opera company up and running again. And, you know, opera is this tricky art form because it can be a museum piece and not that that's a negative thing. Opera can uh, just be another museum piece and a traditional production. But there's so many new operas being composed. And in my career, I've been very fortunate to be in some of those new operas. That's what I won the Grammy for was Fantastic Mr. Fox. Who knew there was an opera about the Raoul Dahl book? You know, but there's, there's opera being written all the time, and there's opera that can be written about our lives, our stories, because uh, that's what opera really is. It's our shared humanity. So Stella and I just got to talking about, hey, we should do a new opera. <laughs> you know, it was very ambitious for a young company to commission something, um, but I happened to also be friends with Mark Campbell, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning librettist, opera librettist. I teamed uh, Stella and Mark up. They were willing to work with each other. They, they really hit it off, and we said we want to find a Florida story. 
After considering many options for Florida stories, the Opera Orlando team selected to adapt the Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings children's book, The Secret River. Composer Stella Sung. Mark and I were thinking about what story, and we were running it by Gabe and team, and like, oh, should be maybe Ponce de Leon or Disney or, you know, all kinds of whatever the Florida, space the coast. Space Coast, yeah. all kinds of things. And um, they just don't, weren't quite fitting right. And, and then uh, one day a friend of mine, I was talking to her on the phone, and she said, oh, I just bought this book by Marjorie Canan Rawlings called The Secret River. It's a children's book, and maybe that would be interesting. So we went out, we bought the book, we all fell in love with it. Uh, and said, this is it, this is going to be our, our new opera. And um, growing up in Gainesville, uh, I went to P.K. Young um, from kindergarten through high school. And uh, we went to the Rawlings um, home, homestead, um, all the time. I mean, it was kind of our field trip. <laughs> and uh, so I was familiar with, with Rawlings, of course, and, but I had never run across this book particularly. And so we just, uh, we loved it. And Mark uh, said, I'm going to go ahead and start writing libretto. And he crafted a beautiful libretto. Um, I couldn't have asked for a better collaborator and, um, and a beautiful uh, writer and understood the story, kept the simplicity, and yet there was a complexity underneath um, about life, about humanity, about family, all those wonderful things. So yeah, that's how we, we got going. Mark Campbell has written librettos for dozens of operas, including The Shining, based on the Stephen King novel, and The Manchurian Candidate, based on the Richard Condon novel. Once Campbell provided the libretto for The Secret River, Stella Sung set the story to music. What Mark gave me was absolutely beautiful, and very, very few uh, changes, at least at the outset, that we needed to do. And, and so I started writing the music to it. And then we had our first um, uh, run-through uh, workshop. A piano workshop. Piano workshop. Just piano, yeah. yeah. Just piano and um, and singers. And then we started collaborating a little bit more, just kind of tweaking and changing a few things here to make it better. Because both Mark and I always felt like, okay, we have our product, but we can improve. We can improve it, and we can change it to make it better, make the story better. Um, and and tell the story a, a little closer. So that's what we did. Opera is a spectacle involving much more than words and music. Gabriel Presser says that it took a team of collaborators to bring the Secret River to life. Yeah, Mark and Stella were part of the creative team meetings, the production meetings. Um, obviously, we got other people involved as well, such as Everett McCorvey, fabulous conductor, uh, founder of the uh, Negro Spiritual Ensemble. Dennis Whitehead-Darling came in as our stage director. Uh, Grant Price, my brother, was the set designer. We brought in Christy Shackelford as the costume designer. She did a lovely job. So you start adding these other elements. That's what's so great about opera is it's a culmination of all the art forms. It's this very collaborative art form. We also had Michelee puppets uh, who designed the puppetry. Those are all built from scratch. 
and kind of the idea around the puppetry was that they should all be coming out of Keani's imagination. So it might have been hard to tell, but they were all made from found objects. So the bear was made from baskets, twigs. The hoot owl was made from maple leaves. The, that was the, the back. The orange were all maple leaves. Other puppets represented a variety of fish and a Florida panther. Choreography added to the presentation. Florence Turcott, literary manuscripts archivist at the University of Florida, was also consulted. We brought in a choreographer, Maxine Montel, who did a great job with kind of the river spirits, which weren't in the book, but, you know, you get a little creative license, and we, we ran it by Flo, who, who was there, you know. Flo, Flo, Florence gave us the blessing of uh, being the official archivist, and I remember taking the trip up to University of Florida, and, and she showed us the original manuscripts and just gave us, there's so much context around this piece, so much history. We don't have time to go into all of it, and I'm, I'm sure Flo can spend a whole hour talking about it, but I think the most interesting thing is this book wasn't published during her lifetime. It was published posthumously because they didn't think it would sell because it was about an African-American family. I mean, how sad is that? But what a beautiful, universal message this piece has, and that's why we fell in love with it because it has a message for all of us, big or small, young or old, no matter who we are. The talented cast of singing actors in The Secret River included soprano Kiani Richardson as Calpurnia, baritone Jeffrey Peterson and soprano Nagwanda Nobles as her parents, mezzo-soprano Kimberly Milton as Mother Alberta, and soprano Emily Pulley as Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings. The ensemble is our youth company. We have a, a professional youth company in Opera Orlando. We were so proud of them, the little village kids, and they did all the puppetry, so they got lessons in how to do puppetry, which was super cool. One of the dancers was from University of Florida, Badaquisa, the other two are from Orlando. So a lot of it is, is from Orlando, from Florida. It's a Florida story by a Florida author, a Florida composer, so we're, we're really just proud of it. We spoke with composer Stella Sung and Opera Orlando Executive Director Gabriel Presser at the screening of a film version of the new opera The Secret River at the Hippodrome State Theater in Gainesville. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, we read and hear a lot of stories about pythons in South Florida and other non-indigenous animals and plants. How have environmental historians written about this phenomenon? Although invasive plant and animal species in South Florida are the source of sensational newspaper headlines and garner millions of social media likes, 
The topic has received little scholarly attention. The Florida Historical Quarterly published its first article on the topic in 2020, written by Andrew Pemberton, a recent MA graduate from the University of North Florida in Jacksonville. The article, titled Invading Eden, looks at the history of exotic pets and their relationship to the problem of invading species in South Florida. Pemberton situates his article within the larger historiography of Florida as a tropical paradise, the incorporation of exotic animals as pets, and the regulatory history of the trade in exotic pets. He argues that exotic pets contributed to the proliferation of invasive species in South Florida in two ways. First, since the 1960s, the organized sale of exotic pets encouraged ownership of non-native animals that flourish in tropical environs. Second, while the exotic pet market imported animals and made them available to buyers, it did not educate pet owners on the proper methods of managing their exotic animals or inform them on the problems associated with release. Although the environmental problems associated with the release of exotic pets has been known since the 1970s, little regulatory effort was available in Florida until the early 2000s. Connie, with little scholarship on the history of exotic animals as invasive species, how did the author connect his work to that of other environmental historians? The historiography of this article helps us see how historians work, how they draw on the research and analyses of others to frame their own studies. Starting with the work of historians Gary Mormino and Mark Durr, Pemberton situates his article within the paradigm of Florida as a tropical paradise and the environmental issues associated with rapid population growth starting in the mid-20th century. He looks to Harriet Ritvo's 2004 article, Animal Planet, in the journal Environmental History, and Jack Davis and Ray Arsenault's book, Paradise Lost, published in 2005, as examples of scholarship that shifted the focus to animals. Ritvo notes that while animal studies are not new to environmental history, increasing threats to animals such as habitat destruction and ecological pressures of invasive species have brought animals to the forefront of a growing body of environmental histories. Davis and Arsenault noted the anthropocentric social construction of paradise that emerged as humans separated themselves from nature. In a chapter titled Alligators and Plume Birds, Davis points to the association between Florida as an Edenic paradise and an emerging national and tourist market in bird plumes and wings and alligator teeth. Journalist Michael Grunwald's 2006 book, The Swamp, studied the Everglades and the animals that inhabited this underappreciated ecological treasure. As Pemberton notes, Grunwald's book reaffirms what historian Garrett Hardin called the tragedy of the commons by framing the Everglades as a moral test of humanity's ability to share the planet's natural resources and live harmoniously with nature. Finally, anthropologist Laura Ogden, in her 2011 book, Swamp Life, challenged Grunwald's focus on human action to the Everglades to interpret the site as a place of people and humans' history, with changing relationships between humans and the natural world and competing visions for the Everglades. In a single paragraph, 
Ogden raises the issue of invasion of exotic species. In doing so, she portrays the animals as historical agents. Pemberton builds on the insights of these scholars to explore the environmental consequences of invasive species and environmental implications of the global trade in exotic animals. Scientists have long recognized the presence of exotic animal species in the Florida environment, right? Yes. In 1939, the distinguished herpetologist Archie Carr noted the appearance of the Cuban native yellow-headed gecko in a populous and apparently well-established colony that was previously unrecognized. The lizards were kept by a South Florida man who, Carr explained, collected exotic reptiles as a hobby. By 1958, the importation of exotic animals had become so extensive that the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals founded an animal port at Idlewild Field, you know it better as John F. Kennedy International Airport, to accommodate the animals in safe and sanitary conditions before their disbursement across the nation. By 1970, the animal port had handled 143 species and 794,000 individual animals. The 1960s saw a steep rise in the importation of exotic animals for an expanded consumer market. As Americans began seeking adventure and the unusual, purchasing piranha fish, cheetahs, and pythons, Pythons and boa constrictors acted as a gateway pet for those entering the exotic pet world. Pet owners often moved from the purchase of a single exotic to ownership of multiple exotic species. In the advent of the age of Aquarius, exotic snakes played an outsized visual role. Concern that led to regulation occurred first in the West, but the real problem was in the South, where exotic snakes, frogs, and iguanas found a home away from home with no natural predators. In 1973, Congress enacted the Endangered Species Act, which did not address non-native species. However, as Pemberton notes, people soon identified the exotic pet craze as a threat to some species. In 1977, President Jimmy Carter issued Executive Order 11987, which defined terms such as exotic species, native species, and introduction, and called upon government at all levels to restrict the introduction of exotic species into any natural ecosystem in the United States. Did these actions help the situation? For South Florida, it may have been too late. By the early 21st century, the proliferation of the Burmese python had taken a steep toll on the Everglades wildlife. A growing population of pythons, which are not picky eaters, reduced the sightings of raccoons by more than 99 percent, possums by 98.9 percent, bobcats by 87.5 percent, and sightings of rabbits had disappeared altogether. Iguanas had become ubiquitous in South Florida. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission made efforts to control the spread of exotic pets and conducted exotic pet amnesty days to provide a safe way to relinquish control over unwanted animals. Since 2006, owners have turned over more than 6,800 animals with no questions asked. The FWC also created an exotic pet classification system 
to prevent the introduction of exotic species. The FWC considers the Burmese python a Class three animal and too dangerous to the owner and to the ecosystem to sell in Florida. Pemberton concludes his article by noting that, although many pathways of introduction of invasive species exist, the exotic pet trade has played a particularly dubious role in the proliferation of invasive species in the United States. Interesting. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. You know you caught me crawling, baby, when the, when the grass was very high. I'm just gonna keep on crawling, now, baby, until the day I die, because my crawling can't snake, baby. This is Florida Frontiers. Some of the best-loved songs of the late 20th century were recorded in Miami. Holly Baker has this look at Criteria Studios. Criteria Studios, an iconic recording studio in Miami, Florida, was founded in 1958 by musician Mac Emmerman. Since then, the studio has been the source of many hit songs. Jeff Nolan is an independent music and marketing consultant and the historian for Hard Rock International. He talked to me about Criteria Studios. I think with Criteria, a thing that I, I love about it is, you know, it is truly iconic and you can't overstate how important Criteria was and still is to the development of American popular music. It, it was an incubator for some of the generation defining sounds. In the 1970s, a long list of popular artists created legendary music in Criteria Studios, including Fleetwood Mac's Rumors and the Eagles Hotel California. In November of 1970, Eric Clapton's group, Derek and the Dominoes, recorded their only studio album, Layla, at Criteria Studios. The song Layla from the album featured Eric Clapton's lead vocals and guitar, along with Dwayne Allman's lead and slide guitar. You know, if you look at Criteria and the amount of incredible and legendary music that was recorded there, Layla is certainly the one that jumps out and has the big story attached to it. You know, Clapton had that uh, sort of affinity for the area. And I mean, he even called an album 461 Ocean Boulevard, <laughs> which is just a house down the street. It's an extraordinary thing because it is so raw and heartfelt and real and incredibly well recorded, but unpolished. Criteria Studios was also at the forefront of the disco movement. The music group, the Bee Gees, were a fixture at Criteria in the 1970s, recording chart-topping songs like Stayin' Alive and How Deep Is Your Love in the studio. The Bee Gees, to me, are, even though they're, you know, Australian, I equate them to Miami for some reason. I, I just, they, they feel Miami-ish. But yeah, the Bee Gees recorded at Criteria a lot. Massive hits came out of there. They did the whole uh, Spirits Having Flown album out of there, which was their follow-up to Saturday Night Fever, and it was just, you know, one hit after another. I mean, those guys were and are so brilliant. And because of the success they had with this, you know, kind of goofy disco movie, they sometimes get pigeonholed as this sort of 
era band, but the Gibb brothers are truly like Beatles level brilliant writers, producers, and their uh, recorded output goes so, so much farther than just what they did for Saturday Night Fever or during the disco era. Uh, incredible, incredible band. And Criteria was a great fit for them. They got to work with a genius producer and they got to go to a great spot. Robin Gibb of the Bee Gees said that the rhythm of their 1975 song, Jive Talkin', originally called Drive Talkin', was inspired by the sound made by their car tires as they drove over the Julia Tuttle Causeway on their way from their Miami Beach homes to Criteria Studios. Nolan explains, Criteria Studios was popular with musicians not just because of the sunny location or the state-of-the-art studio equipment. The main reason so many musicians flocked to Criteria Studios was because of recording engineer and producer Tom Dowd. Criteria, as great a studio as it is, the, the legacy and its place in history is just as much about one man, Tom Dowd. This is as brilliant a record producer as we've ever seen in the history of contemporary music. It, that's, that's just a fact. I mean, the guy did it all and was such a brilliant creative soul. Some, some folks don't know this about Tom. Before he became a legendary recording engineer, he was a physicist. And Tom himself worked on the Manhattan Project. He was one of the physicists that worked, you know, on developing atomic energy and, well, the A-bomb. And how somebody goes from that sort of academic pursuit and that really dry sort of numbers game to recording the Layla album and dealing with those guys back then, uh, I think is, is, is that, that's fascinating to me. And I think that Tom himself, his presence at Criteria was a huge part of why that studio was so successful. People wanted to come work with Tom just as much as they wanted to come record in that room. In 1999, the Hit Factory purchased Criteria Studios and reopened the studios under the name The Hit Factory Criteria Miami. In 2017, the studio once again returned to the original Criteria Studios name. Today, the studio is a music landmark that's still used by popular musicians. You know, one thing that I think is noteworthy about Criteria is just the fact that it's still open and it's still doing relevant, viable work in the 21st century. Yeah, but it's not even just this legacy music. I mean, Drake's recorded in there. Nicki Minaj worked out of there. A lot of these legendary temples of recording from back in the day are gone. The, the advent of easy, inexpensive digital recording killed so many of the big studios. Be able to continue putting out relevant music in, in the 21st century is amazing. It speaks to, uh, you know, how truly important that place is. You have to change and you have to evolve the technology, the acoustic space, the way you're working. That's part of why Criteria is able to stay viable in the 21st century. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. 
Please join us right here again next week. You can also find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.